0: Welcome to Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church. This episode is another in our series considering the impact that Christianity has had on history and culture. Today we take a look at the influence that the faith has had on education. The roots of the Christian posture toward education lie in Jesus' command to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. He told them that as they went, they were to make disciples of all nations teaching them to keep all that he had commanded. The modern evangelical church has taken the word and idea of discipleship and turned it into something rather different from what those original disciples understood it to mean. A first century disciple from the region of Galilee where the original disciples were from and where Jesus spent most of his life and did most of his ministry was someone who had been selected by a rabbi To follow him and become a devoted learner. A disciple was, in the most intense sense of the word, a scholar, whose field of study was the life and teaching of his rabbi. His goal was to be just like that rabbi, and he spent 15 years of his life following his rabbi, 24 7, 365 and a quarter, so that he could be just like his rabbi. He began following at about the age of 15 and ended at the age of 30. If he proved himself a worthy student and his rabbi sensed that he too was called, he became a rabbi at the age of 30. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was about 30 when he began his public ministry. He was following in this pattern for rabbis and disciples in place in first century Galilee. If a disciple wasn't quite cut out to be a rabbi, which required a demonstrated divine authority from God. Then that disciple returned to his village to become the Torah teacher in the local synagogue, where all Jewish boys and girls went from the ages of six to ten. There, they trained these youngsters to memorize the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible. Now, check it out. They didn't just memorize the names of the five books of Moses, they memorized all that was written in them, Genesis through Deuteronomy, word for word. Those boys who excelled at memorization in this first phase of education then went on to phase two, in which the Torah teacher taught them the rest of the Tanakh, as well as the commentary on it by Israel's most famous rabbis. It was the cream of crop from that phase that became candidates to train under a rabbi as a disciple. The point is this. Jesus told his disciples that they were to go and to do with others what he had done with them that is, make disciples, and they understood what teaching them to keep all that Christ had commanded meant. It was a rigorous course of education that aimed not just at knowledge, but at life change. The disciples took Jesus' command seriously. Acts chapter 5 tells us that after the Feast of Pentecost, the disciples, now turned apostles, never stopped teaching As Acts chronicles the Apostle Paul's ministry, we see his emphasis on teaching. Paul was a teaching machine. He used every opportunity to inform people of the truth and then call them to the implications of that truth. In giving the qualifications for the church leaders called elders, which in the New Testament is synonymous with the word bishop and pastor, Paul says that they must be able to teach. Immediately following the time of the apostles, the second generation of Christian leaders took up the mantle of leadership and set out to call the essence of what Christians believe. They devised what's known as the Didache, meaning the teaching or the instruction. This was written sometime between 80 and 110 AD. In the early 2nd century, the pastor, or as we would call him bishop, Ignatius of Antioch, urged all churches to instruct children in the scriptures and to teach them a trade. This was a direct carryover from Judaism, which placed tremendous emphasis on literacy, that is, on knowing how to read and understand God's word, and on knowing a skilled trade. As we saw in a long-ago episode of Communio Sanctorum, while baptism in the New Testament was something that believers were urged to do as soon as they came to faith, as a public profession of that faith, as the decades passed, baptism was delayed until after new believers could be catechized, that is, Taught the catechism, which was a question-and-answer format in which they were taught the doctrines of the faith. And these were no lightweight questions. It was some pretty deep theology. They weren't baptized until they had taken all the lessons, and that meant, well, two to three years before they would be dunked. These catechumen, as they were called, were at first taught in the homes of other church members, but eventually there were too many, and so special schools were built— In these schools, the emphasis was on literacy, where people could learn to read and write so that they could read the scriptures and other classical works. Justin Martyr built one of these schools in Rome, and another in Ephesus. They began popping up all over and earned a reputation as a home of great scholarship. The school in Alexandria, Egypt, was regarded around the empire as a great center of learning and scholarship. Another school in Caesarea, on the coast of Israel, was another. It was out of these schools that the towering intellects of men like Origen, Clement, and Athanasius arose. While the main course of study in these schools was theology and the Bible, they included other disciplines as well. Mathematics, medicine, philosophy, grammar, and what passed for the science of the day. These centers of learning went far to remove the stigma the critics of the faith had attached to it in its early days, that it was a despicable religion fit only for the poor, for the uneducated and slaves. The church was led by some of the brightest minds of the day who were more than capable at not only defending the faith, but in dismantling the majority paganism. Many of these early apologists used the best of Greek philosophy to argue for the superiority of the Christian worldview it infuriated pagan apologists (laughs) that their own heroes from the past seemed to lend their weight to the Christian gospel. Now, to be sure, Christians weren't the first to set up schools. In Corinth, the book of Acts tells us that there were pagan schools when Paul arrived. They were doing a brisk business, too. Where the Christian schools defied convention was in their willingness to educate both sexes in the same setting. Romans taught only boys, and only from wealthy families at that. Christians taught men, women, and children, regardless of how many coppers they could pass the teacher. In the 5th century, Augustine said that most Christian women were better educated than pagan philosophers. As education became more and more a mark of being a Christian, their homes expanded and the course of study grew more comprehensive. Students were taught the trivium of grammar, rhetoric, and logic as core subjects, and the quadrivium of arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy as support studies. The church's goal in this education was to make sure that its members were well-educated, especially its clergy. They needed to be educated so they could love God with all of their mind and serve him with all of their strength. In the 8th century, Charlemagne made sure that his children were well-educated and brought the famous English scholar Alcuin to tutor them as well as the other children of the nobility. Hundreds of years later, King Alfred of England made sure that his sons and daughters were taught to read and write in their native tongue and Latin, which was the scholarly language of the day. In the 1330s, a Florentine writer reported that there were about 10,000 children in Florence's Christian schools. While the church educated both sexes equally for the first several centuries. As the Middle Ages approached and the cathedral schools grew, the emphasis on education shifted to men who were being trained for the clergy. Women were moved to convents and nunneries where they learned basic literacy and the arts. But the passage of time saw the emphasis on women's education wane in favor of men and boys. There wasn't so much an official position taken by the church that opposed the education of women and girls. It was more the result of social apathy. In the 15th century, two church leaders, Leonardo Bruni and Battista Gargano, called attention to the appalling lack of emphasis on education for women and urged reform. Those reforms were at least partially successful, as the number of women scholars that appeared in Europe over the next decades and the centuries was, well, simply remarkable. Women such as Lioba, Ratzvitha, Hildegard, Brigetta, Catherine of Siena and Christine de Pizan. Students of medieval history often have the mental image of the cloistered halls of monasteries, where monks sit hunched over slanted tables, laboriously copying ancient text on parchment with quill and ink. Well, what they ought to add to that is the cloistered halls of convents, where nuns sat doing precisely the same thing. It was in these scriptoriums that scripture and the ancient classics were copied, their treasure saved, and passed on to posterity. This emphasis on teaching both sexes dates back to Jesus' own willingness to teach women. While there were no women numbered among the twelve apostles, they certainly were counted among the larger number of unofficial disciples who followed Jesus, and that was something that was simply unheard of among first-century Jews. Rabbis did not allow women to come into contact with them. They did not accept them as disciples. Girls from age six to 10 were taught alongside the boys in the Torah schools, which were attached to the synagogue. But at the age of 10, they went home to learn at their mother's side how to be a wife and a mother. Part of the scandal that simmered around Jesus was his acceptance of women as a part of that small crowd that accompanied him wherever he went. He taught them alongside the men in this Sermon on the Mount. He taught them in Lazarus' home in Bethany. The famous story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is stunning in its description of how utterly unexpected it was. She even said, How is it that you talk to me, a Samaritan, and a woman? The famous historian Will Durant comments on the uniqueness of Christianity in the Greco-Roman environment it grew up in that it broke with convention by being a religion for everyone. Ethnicity, sex, and social standing had nothing to do with its appeal or outreach. All were welcome, and all welcome equally. The movement toward universal education came during the Reformation in the 16th century. Martin Luther's appeal for reform, embodied in the 95 theses that he tacked to the church door in Wittenberg, were necessitated by the appalling decline in education that had taken place over the previous centuries in Europe. The church had become corrupted so that many of its leaders were lazy and shirked the call to scholarship. Instead of the clergy being the best educated, many couldn't even read or write. As Martin Luther visited the churches of Saxony, he was dismayed by the number of nearly illiterate priests and monks. And so he embarked on a campaign of education In 1529, he wrote the small catechism, which taught the basics of the faith, and then things began to turn around. Luther said that people needed to understand both the word of scripture and the nature of the world in which the word took root. He urged for a state school system in which elementary students would be taught the basics of grammar, reading, writing, and then for secondary education, would learn Latin so they could read the classics to broaden their worldview. He criticized parents who failed to make sure that their children were schooled. One of Luther's most significant breaks with the religious schools of previous generations was his belief that not only were schools needed to train clergy, just as important a function was to train those doing non-religious or what we would call secular work. Luther believed that clergy ought to be called by God, not just educated by man. And so those not called to church work were called just as much by God into secular work, and so they needed just as strong an education. It was this sense of divine calling or vocation that framed what came to be known as the Protestant work ethic. John Calvin, the reformer whose ideas shaped the city of Geneva, established a school system there. And as the Reformation spread across Europe, the idea of universal education met with some resistance from the lower classes for two reasons. First of all, what little education that had remained until that time was done by the church, which they now considered corrupt. So, book learning was suspected as being something that would corrupt the young, turning them into agents of the Pope. And second, the educated tended to be the people in the upper social classes who were seen as lazy by the working class. For that reason, in many rural settings, the movement toward universal education was slow to catch on. Luther and the other reformers knew that a healthy church was built by literacy and so urged civil magistrates to make education of the young compulsory. In many places in Germany, they complied, and soon public schools, supported by taxes, were growing across the land. So it's sad to see how the modern public school system has become so hostile towards Christianity. It owes its very existence to the faith. Like never before you oh.